0: There are 35 kilometers of material in the university's archives. Not all of them can be real. We'll be looking at several items that are fakes and forgeries, and they are all inside the collection. Welcome to The Collection Podcast. My name is Chloe McGulchey. This week's episode is Fakes and Forgeries. Now, with most large collections, there are bound to be a few fake items. More specifically, these are items that are forgeries, that have been created with the intent of fooling people. And then you must ask, well, why? Why would you fake something? And by answering this question, we begin to understand more about the time in which these items were created and what was considered valuable. Though the legitimacy of these items are questionable, they are remarkable. The first item we're going to talk about is a pretty unusual place to start, as the item itself actually isn't fake. It's a very real letter between James cosser Hubert and Charles Dawson in September of 1915. However, it is the contents of that letter that point to one of the greatest forgeries in modern paleoanthropology. To understand this letter, we'll start with the two correspondents, Here to introduce James Cosser-Ewart is Claire
1: Button. My name is Claire Button and I'm the project archivist on Towards Dolly project, which is a Wellcome Trust funded project that's been running since 2012 about animal genetics. Um, Should I say a bit about James Cosser-Ewart? Sure, absolutely. So he was a professor of natural history at the University of Edinburgh uh, from 1882 to 1927. Um, and he's a very very interesting character in a number of ways um he's mainly well known for his work with animal breeding. He was doing quite a lot of cross breeding particularly with horses and zebras that 's what he was most famous for um because he was trying to this is before uh, the science of genetics was established. So really all had to go on because they didn't know about genes and chromosomes and what was going on inside cells. The only way that um, they could understand what was going on in terms of the inheritance of characteristics and what happens when you crossbreed different things is to look at um, the markings on um, the coats of animals when you crossbreed them. So obviously crossbreeding zebras and horses is an easy way of uh, noting whether or not stripes get inherited. Um, so he was quite famous for doing that. And also because he lived out in Pennycook, just outside uh, Edinburgh, um, he also kept quite a lot of zebras and exotic animals in his house in Penicook. So he became sort of a, a famous local figure for that reason. But he was also quite instrumental in setting up um, genetics in the university itself or in Edinburgh itself because when um, when genetics became established as a science at the turn of the 20th century, um, Hewitt realised how important it was that um, that Britain be, get involved, um, so, and particularly Edinburgh, because he'd already established Edinburgh as a, a centre for animal breeding research. Um, so he kind of uh, pulled a lot of strings and in 1911 uh, a lectureship was set up at the university and he was instrumental in creating that. So in many ways, perhaps if it hadn't been for Hewitt, we wouldn't have the modern day um, Rosalind Institute, which is um, a world-famous um, research institute that focuses on uh, animal, um, animal genetics, genomics, and biotechnology.
0: Kosser Ewart was instrumental in establishing zoology and genetics as a field of study in Edinburgh and was a quite notable figure in the scientific community. He had correspondence with many other scientists at the time, documented through his collection of letters.
1: Kosser Ewart's papers came to us, came to the university in the 1950s. Um, and uh, obviously, there's a university connection there because he was professor at the university itself. But it was only really until recently when we had the funding from the Wellcome Trust that we catalogued um, the collection fully. So that enabled um, letters like this to actually be to emerge and the stories behind them to come out. You were, knew a great deal of people around the world um, who were interested in uh, science, biology. Um, but also people like Dawson, who were were archaeologists. So he does communicate with quite a a number of archaeologists, um, mainly about animal remains, so early Roman um, horse remains, for instance, which Hewitt wrote about. But this is the only time that we actually see him uh, having anything to do with human remains and early evolution.
0: This brings us to Charles Dawson. Dawson was an amateur archaeologist, the more accurate term being hobbyist, for someone with no real professional training or prior experience in archaeology, Dawson was famous for his unusual and seemingly groundbreaking paleontological finds. Amongst these were teeth from a previously unknown species of animal, later named Plagiolax Dawsoni, three new species of dinosaur, one later named Iguanodon Dawsoni, and a new form of fossil plant, Salinginella Dawsoni. You're beginning to pick up a pattern. Because of his frequent, important finds, he was elected fellow of the Geological Society and the Society of Antiquaries of London. The Sussex Daily News even gave him the title of the Wizard of Sussex. In 1919, Dawson writes to
1: Ewart. The one that we're we're discussing here was written to Cossie Ewart from uh, Charles Dawson in September 1915. There's a letter from June 1915 that he writes first, where he's uh, which explains the reason why he's writing to Hewitt in the first place, which is that he's he's looking to uh, get some help about um, an unusual specimen of a horse that he's seen. It's nicknamed Satan because it has two um, horn-like um, protrusions on its skull as well as some uh, unusual stripes as well. So because of Hewitt's expertise in... Um, horses and coat coat markings on animals. He's obviously writing to him as the national expert on these things. And um, Ewitt, obviously, we don't have his reply, unfortunately, but um, we know from the next letter from Dawson that Ewitt's obviously said, oh, I've I've got a a specimen of a skull that resembles what you're talking about. Would you like to come and see it? So Dawson replies and says, yes, I'd like to come up to Edinburgh um, and see the the horse skull that you mentioned. And while I'm at it, I'll bring up... um, I'll bring up the uh, latest pieces of Eoanthropus um, for you to see. And um, I didn't make the connection at at first, but when I was cataloging the letter, I thought, well, I'll I'll look up Charles Dawson, Eoanthropus. And of course, the Piltdown hoax story uh, came up immediately.
0: The Piltdown Man Skull was asserted as the missing link between ape and man. It was the skull of an early human with a large brain, ape-like jaw, and human teeth. This was coming right on the heels of Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species and the discovery of the Cro-Magnon Man in 1869. So this meant that there had been a big rush to find evolutionary artifacts in human remains. It wasn't until 1953 that the Piltdown Man was exposed as a forgery in an article by Time Magazine. The skull was actually a composite and consisted of a human skull of the medieval age, a 500-year-old lower jaw of an orangutan and chimpanzee fossil teeth. Someone had created the appearance of age by staining the bones with an iron solution in chromic acid. Microscopic examination revealed file marks on the teeth, and it was deduced from this that someone had shaped the teeth to be more suited to a human diet.
1: And of course in neither Dawson nor Hewitt's lifetime, um, it wasn't revealed to be a hoax until um, until 1953, so they were both dead by that point. So we don't know whether Hewitt's um, believed Dawson, whether he or whether he even actually saw the, the skull remains himself, but it's interesting to speculate that he he did.
0: Realistically, Kosser Ewart's focus was on animal genetics, not really human. As Claire points out, there's no evidence pointing to his attention or involvement, but it is interesting to imagine what would have happened if Kosser Ewart had shown interest in the Piltdown Man skull or if he even saw it. Presumably, he was working more with horses than primates yeah yeah that's true yeah Um, but you have to wonder if somebody has um such a strong knowledge of animals if they could it would recognize yeah if he could call shenanigans on that skull
1: yeah because of course his background was actual um medicine and anatomy so he'd obviously studied human anatomy very closely before specializing in zoology um, so it, it may well be that he, because he read so very widely, that, that he was probably more knowledgeable about these than Dawson was, for instance. Right. Um, so, what's also quite interesting is that they did, the two men did actually share quite a lot of mutual acquaintances as well. So, um, there's only two letters from Dawson in the Hewitt collection, and it's, there's lots and, lots and lots and lots of correspondence uh, in the archives, but only two letters from Dawson. Um, but it is interesting how many um, other. Letters um, are from people that Dawson knew as well as Hewitt. Um, so they obviously had a, an overlapping social circle. So we don't know if they, how often they met. They may have only met a few times or they might yeah. have known each other relatively well.
0: There's evidence that Dawson created around 38 fake specimens over the course of his life, all in the hopes of gaining acceptance into various scientific societies and establishing credibility in the scientific world. This possibly explains his correspondence with koster Ewart and the specific mention of the Eoanthropus skull.
1: There were questions asked at the time um, because it seemed so strange that he was finding all these weird and wonderful things and it, you know, it just so happened that it was always him that found them or perhaps he was on his own when he found them. I think people, some people were, were skeptical at the time but um, the, their doubts kept being sort of talked over and smoothed over and it wasn't until Dawson had died that it emerged exactly that a lot of his finds, not just the Piltdown, were were hoaxes Um, but it's quite interesting in the history of archaeology because it says a lot about the profession at that time in the early 20th century when it was uh, emerging as a profession more fully but it still had this association with hobbyists and amateurs You know, and it still does of course, you've still got metal detectorists and and people who um, amateur uh, amateur archaeologists. So it does have that, um, The what's the word, maybe uh, a tension, perhaps, between um, uh, fully trained professionals and uh, amateurs.
0: Dawson, like many people, have the desire to discover. They want to be a part of something special and profound and to be remembered for it. James Coster-Ewart is remembered for his groundbreaking discoveries in animal genetics. And though Dawson is remembered, it's not for his scientific aptitude. Yes, the Piltdown man skull is a fake, but it is also noteworthy, and it achieved for Dawson the recognition he always sought. Just infamously. Believe it or not, the next set of items we'll be talking about also come from James Kosser Ewart's collection, and this time, they are two small photographs in the Roslyn glass
1: slides. Again, here's Claire. So there are 3,470-something glass slides, so about 3,500, and they came to us in November 2009 as part of um, a collection of records that came to us from the Roslyn Institute. So it looks likely that um, a lot of these slides are late 19th, early 20th century in date. Um, so it, it's probably the case that the slides pass through various the hands of various people um, before ending up out at Roslyn. Um, it's, so it's a bit of a mystery exactly how they ended up at Roslyn. But they're the very, very varied. Um, in subject, there's quite a lot of slides that deal with different types of animals, different animal breeds. Um, but there's also um, photographs from around the world, um, so various um, various different communities around the world, as well as sort of animals. So it's probable that the, whoever amassed this collection was um, sort of documenting their field trips and their research trips.
0: It is in these travel slides that we find two fake photographs. The first image is of a Maori girl standing in a canoe on the Wanganui River of New Zealand. it's glass slide number 255. The second is glass slide 1022, entitled Zambesi Bridge in St. Paul. Flipping through the thousands of glass slides, they're easy to miss, as they're tiny 8 centimeter by 8 centimeter slides. But on closer inspection, you will find that both of them have been doctored.
1: I think it was the the discovery that, um, particularly the girl on the river picture, the discovery that that was uh, actually turned out to be fake made it one of the standout images in the in the whole collection and um, was even featured in in various newspapers when we sort of um, put out a press release about the collection as a whole. Um, so um, I should say that the collection was first catalogued uh, and then we received a separate grant from the Wellcome Trust to digitise it so our colleagues in the digital imaging unit did a great job um, digitising that digitally photographing the whole collection. So it was really it was them that made the discovery because um, what's interesting about that slide is that it's only through digitization that we've been able to discover that it is a fake because it's very hard to see in the small uh, the small version of the glass slide that it is fake so I um, just got an email one day and they were saying um, we've come and have a look at this picture Um, do you see anything suspicious about it (laughs) and it was obviously blown up quite large on the screen Um, and you can see that there's the sunlight is coming from two different sources and you can see that there's no reflection of the boat in the river and the perspective's all wrong and you can also see that she looks like a cutout in the image Um, so it was just like a really interesting find Um, whereas as you say the the other fake that we know about in the collection of the the bridge and St. Paul's Cathedral is is obviously almost like a humorous sort of slide. It's obviously done as a fake, whereas the other one is is much more subtle.
0: The Zambesi Bridge and St. Paul slide are very obviously pastiched. As the label states, the British St. Paul's Cathedral is placed under the Zambesi Bridge, which is located over Victoria Falls, and it features a collaged label underneath reading Rhodesia, which is now modern-day Zimbabwe. Obviously, this would be impossible, and this juxtaposition frankly emphasizes the fakeness. So was this a test? Perhaps an exercise in analog Photoshop? And what was the purpose? To create a more dynamic and informative photo? I asked Claire for her thoughts.
1: It's really hard to say uh, because we know so little about the collection. Um, We know that a lot of the slides were used for teaching purposes to illustrate lectures, so it could have been I mean it doesn't the slide itself doesn't particularly illustrate anything about biology or animal breeding or anything, does it? So it might be that it was purely a decorative picture. Um and it, it might have been if it what if it does have a connection with with James Cosse Hewitt, it might have been that We know that he travelled in New Zealand, for instance, that when he was showing his slides about New Zealand and about the research he was doing in sheep and wool over there at that time, it might have been that he was like, oh, and this is something I saw. And, you know, Mm -hmm. um, perhaps to illustrate scenes of New Zealand, but um, it's obviously a fake photograph. But it's really difficult because we don't, as far as we know, Ewert didn't actually take the photograph himself and probably wouldn't have had the skills to doctor it either. So, yeah, it's, it's a mystery.
0: Though the purpose of these photos is unclear, they have become the standout slides in the collection because they're fake. This is an interesting slide because it's, it's possibly yes. faked.
1: Yeah, and an early yeah. example of image manipulation, you know, that we're sort of used to that now because it's so easy to do. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because of that time, obviously, materials are more, much more primitive and it's more difficult to create a convincing photographic fake.
0: Doctoring photographs is nothing new, and it dates back as early as the 1860s, only a few decades after Nisifor Niepce took the first documented photograph in 1826. A perfect example is the iconic standing portrait of U.S. President Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln's head is actually on the body of Southern politician John Calhoun. Since then, tons of photographs have been faked, and these two glass slides are a reflection of photography and the growing freedom to alter images.
1: Perhaps human nature, isn't it? That if I you can fake something, <laughs> you're going to do it?
0: Or I guess the idea of trying to make something perfect. Exactly, yeah. Or I think also the thrill of getting away with it. Yes, yeah. As we discuss fakes and forgeries, a crucial element is feigned authenticity. That is, the success of passing is real. And we've looked at a few items that have done this successfully and they've used a sort of masking or an air of subtlety as to not call attention to the fake elements. This next item does the exact opposite. It is not subtle in the slightest, and it boasts its unique qualities. It is the Frangelini triple manual harpsichord.
2: Oddly enough, this this is actually the most visited instrument on our website. So when people search harpsichords or search musical instruments, This is the one they look for, and I think it's because it's a three-manual instrument and it's so unusual, and then they find out, well, it's a fake. This is Sarah. I'm Sarah Dieters, and I am the Learning and Engagement Curator for Musical Instrument Museum's Edinburgh.
0: To understand this harpsichord, it's best to look first at the forger, Leopoldo Franchellini. Franchellini was an Italian antiques dealer in the 19th and early 20th century and is an infamous fraudster. He's best known for his modified and often faked musical instruments.
2: I think Frangelini's interesting because not everything he sold was a fake. So some of the things he sold were legitimate and some of the things he created. And so then when you look back at his catalog, um, it's actually, it's interesting to try and figure out, well, which ones did he make and which ones are real? And so just because it went through Frangelini's workshop doesn't necessarily mean it's a fake. Right. so sometimes they are actual real items but ours is definitely a fake. <laughs>
0: one of Frangelini's signatures was the addition of manuals or keyboards to old instruments. The name triple manual says it all as he added not one but two extra rows of keyboards, being one of five triple manuals he created in his
2: lifetime. The original instrument itself, it at the very core of this harpsichord, is a legitimate instrument. There, It's a single manual harpsichord. So a harpsichord was just one keyboard and it was made in a, a 1627 and it was made by an Italian maker called Bolcioni. and what Frangelini did is he took this single manual harpsichord and he actually he made it longer so to give it more grand scale and then he added two more keyboards to it and so he just created this ridic- well, ridiculous <laughs> instrument. It couldn't even work at the time that he made it because he didn't actually make it so the action so the inner parts of it would actually work but the idea is when he sold it it didn't have to work because it was supposed to already be over two hundred years old so you know it, it was okay that it was broken because it was an, an ancient item.
0: Are three manuals even legitimate instruments?
2: Like are there functioning three manual harpsichords? There are we think so, it's kind of fun to say that. Because um, double manuals are... Their double manuals are, are really common. common. Yeah. Um, and then, say in an organ, there's three manual instruments. There could be four manual instruments for organs. Um, and they think that there are three manual harpsichords. There's an instrument that's made by who who is a German maker. And they do think that one of his instruments is a legitimate three manual harpsichords. Now in the world, there's about five or six three manual harpsichords, and they really think only one of them is legit, and the rest of them are probably Frangelini's.
0: Frangelini didn't stop at just the manuals. He often added numerous lavish details that created a sense of opulence, which was definitely a selling point for these instruments. However, these details add to, if not reveal, the fake quality of this harpsichord.
2: So he elongated it, he added these additional keyboards to it, And then he um, put it on a new stand, which the stand is kind of an over-the-top French Rococo stand. It's way too heavy for any kind of Italian item, but I don't really know where he got it from. If he had it made, we're not really sure. Um, But yeah, it, it doesn't match the instrument itself. And then he painted it in this kind of garish gold color, and it's covered in... Uh, paintings of monkeys and all kinds of fantastical creatures. Um, but the funny thing is that's actually not the original paint job that he did. Um oh, really? When he put it in a catalogue that was printed in, I think it's 1910, um, that three manual harpsichord that we have is actually painted in a completely different design. And then he repainted it and resold it. So... You know, I guess maybe he had it painted, it wasn't selling, and then he had it repainted, and then it did sell. Interesting. So, yeah, that design is yet another one of his paintings. Yeah, and I find the paintings
0: so bizarre because the inside, to me, is kind of the traditional Baroque Mm. landscape that you find on the inside of the lid. lid lid painting, yeah. Yeah, but the the monkey painting is what gets (laughs) me because it's like... I can't tell if it's kind of a, like if it's supposed to be like an Indian decorative art. And I, I don't even know yeah. like, what region or era it is, but it's so
2: and wrong. D- <laughs> it's, it's, and it's wrong. Just, in, it's a weird juxtaposition. It's wrong in so many ways. And I think it just perhaps is going into the, the fashion for Orientalism at the mm-hmm. time. And so it's not even really good orientalism but it is kind of using i mean it's kind of chinoiserie but it's not and it's gold and it's and even the paintwork itself is not that good like the craftsmanship whoever the painter was wasn't very good at it not only
0: was the craftsmanship poor but frangelini's instruments were full of inaccuracies
2: one thing that i find hilarious is that he would paint on Italian, or he would paint on latin mottos and he was terrible with Latin, so his motto is his grammar is completely wrong often. And so it was just like he found some Latin words and put it in there to make it look old. But he, would, he didn't know Latin, and so a lot of his Latin mottos just make absolutely no sense.
0: Frangelini's earlier keyboard instruments featured sharp keys, or the black keys, falling in groups of three instead of the alternating 2-3 pattern. For anyone who was familiar with a keyboard instrument, this would have been so obviously fake. But this harpsichord managed to fool many, including musician and
2: collector Raymond Russell. And Raymond Russell was a collector of keyboard instruments, and he really knew his stuff. You know, it wasn't like he was just some guy collecting them because he thought it was pretty. I mean, he was actually um, considered to be an expert in keyboard instruments, and he wrote. Um, a book about the history of the keyboard that is still considered to be one of the best books about the history of the keyboard. But for some reason, Raymond Russell also believed that this was a legitimate instrument. Really? So he really thought that this three manual instrument was a three manual harpsichord from 1627. And yeah, when his collection was given to, or was loaned to the university in 1956 and then eventually gifted to the university, he still thought that this was. A legitimate three manual harpsichords. And what happened was that the curator of the collection kind of noticed that there were problems with the instrument. Um, one of the issues is that the name board is upside down. Usually that's not a, that's not a good sign if your name right. board is upside down. Um, and so he really started to investigate it. And he then was able to discover that this had gone through Frangelini's workshop. It wasn't so much that Frangelini's instruments were undetectably fake,
0: or that his patrons were easily duped, but really it was that collectors didn't care. Form and function took a back seat to ownership and the desire to have. These
2: have issues that, you know, someone should maybe raise their eye and think, well, what's going on with this? But I think that the drive to collect during this time period kind of over, overrode, the, the thought process of making sure this was a legitimate item. Also you're buying it out of Italy so it's kind of you think, oh well there's going to be all these old ancient instruments in Italy so maybe this is one too, you know? You can just get it from this Florentine dealer and it's a legitimate item. At the time nobody was really looking into the validity of these things. It was really to to be the one who has the three manual harpsichords, you know, so they could say, oh, I'm, I'm the person who has the 17th century three manual harpsichords. Um, and Frangelini was just so good at taking advantage of people. He must, have, he must have been a heck of a salesman to be able to do this because, I mean, he was selling all over the world.
0: Now, you have to be wondering, did he ever get caught? And the answer is yes. Yes, he did. In 1910, Frangelini was put on trial for fraud after his instruments were sold through a third party to Wilhelm Heyer, who was an astute German collector and someone who was very familiar with instruments. Frangelini was found guilty, and this case ruined his reputation in Germany. But this didn't stop him. He figured there was a whole market outside of Germany who hadn't caught wind of the trial and continued producing and selling forged instruments until his death in 1920. Because Frangelini's instruments were so widely and internationally collected, these collections have made their way into many museums and institutions. Being fake, however, makes
2: many of these items polarizing. Although these instruments are fake, in museums, they're almost like a sense of pride that you have a Frangelini, because they, he's now become um, quite a personality in musical instrument museums, because almost all museums have a Frangelini. Like, someone has gotten duped along the way by <laughs> Frangellini. And so our collections have them. And museums, they decide whether or not they actually want to exhibit it or not, because for some collections, you don't want to say, like, well, you know, a curator or a collector just didn't really know what was going on and was, you know, taken over by this fraudster. But other ones are, are quite, quite happy to say, like, look at this item. This is a fake. Um, but because it's part of the story of collecting musical
0: instruments. Just because this harpsichord is fake doesn't mean it isn't interesting or noteworthy. While the Franchellini triple manual harpsichord is a visual spectacle, it also paints a picture
2: of collecting musical instruments this was someone who was able to trick a lot of really well-known collectors and it shows kind of the, um, the ideas of the time, the, the drive, the passion to get these things, that this guy was able to take advantage of so many people. I just love him. I think he's great. <laughs> I think he's great and um, I think I would have liked to have met him. Because I think he would have been a great salesman and he probably would have sold me this three manual harpsicle. <laughs>
0: Possibly. Yeah. Though the items we looked at today are fake, that isn't to say that they aren't valuable. They teach us quite a bit about our desires to be recognized, to perfect, and to collect. It is the fact that they are fake that makes them so interesting and noteworthy. So we've looked at objects that are intentional forgeries, but what happens when we label an artwork as a fake? But you need to be careful with those sort of, um, a fake is quite a sort of distinct type of of work. More on that next week. The James Kosser Ewart letters are available online at archives.collections.ed.ac.uk. You can view these and the Roslyn Glass slides in person by requesting them through the Center for Research Collections, located on the sixth floor of the university's main library. As Claire mentioned, these slides have been digitized, so you can also see them on the images website at images.is.ed.ac.uk. The Frangelini Triple Manual harpsichord will be part of a large display that will grace the halls of St. Cecilia when it opens in 2017. Now these are the types of images you have to see to believe, so definitely check out our blog at uoeartandarchives.tumblr.com. We've provided images from this specific episode as well as past episodes. The podcast is also provided on the blog so you can listen and follow along with the images. The Collection Podcast is a production of the University of Edinburgh and the Center for Research Collections is written and produced by Chloe McGulchie. executive producer is Neil Lebeter. If you'd like to know more about these items and other items in the collection, please visit the university's collection website at collections.ed.ac.uk. Better yet, you can see these items online at images.is.ed.ac.uk. My name is Chloe McGulchie, and as always, thank you for stopping by The Collection.